I invite you to turn back to that passage that we read earlier on, John chapter 1. And we have entitled the message, Conversation with Christ. A conversation with Christ. Let's just unite our heart together in a little word of prayer as we come to the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we thank the Lord that thou can do sinners good. Lord, indeed, it's none but Christ that can do sinners good. I know, Lord, the answer for the drug addict tonight is Christ. I know, Lord, the answer tonight for the gambler is Christ. Lord, we know the answer for the churchgoer who is yet not saved is Christ. We pray, Lord, that thou might, O God, speak above the voice of the preacher. I would have thine own way in our meeting tonight. I would bless as we turn to this passage. Lord, as it were, bring us there. Lord, give us understanding. Spirit of the living God, be our teacher. Lord, we pray that thou might instruct us in the things of God. Speak to thy children as well as to the unconverted. Oh, have a word for each one of us. We're not here, Lord, to sit and say, well, that's a good word for so-and-so. But, oh, God, we pray that each of our hearts will be receptive and our ears will be open to thy word. Do us good, therefore. Give us words that must and shall prevail. Give us those prevailing words, I pray. I ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. First two days of the Lord's earthly ministry, finds him calling his first disciples unto him. There is Andrew with probably John. And being convinced and moved by the testimony of John the Baptist, they follow Jesus. And then there's the personal evangelizing of those two whereby they were seeking out their respective brothers. And the implication is that although Andrew, we read, was first to find his brother Simon, as we read in verse 41, so John did the same also. And he was to find his brother James and bring him to Christ. What a notable day that was. Not least when we think of the calling of Peter. That instrument that God would use on the day of Pentecost to see 3,000 souls added into the church. But you know, there's another one here who is added to this little company of disciples, and that is Philip. And what is notable about Philip is that it doesn't appear that he was like those other two with John the Baptist. And neither was he drawn by the appeal of another but he was called directly by Christ. And it reminds us of the truth that the work of the Holy Spirit is sovereign. He calleth everyone severally as he will. Now all true believers are led by one Spirit. We're all washed in the same blood. We're serving the one Lord and Master. We lean on the one Savior. We walk by the one rule. That is God's Word. But all are not converted in the one and the same manner. There are different circumstances that God used in each of your lives, if you're saved tonight, to bring you to Christ. Maybe different circumstances to what God used in my life. 
And that important truth will save us from comparing our experience with that of someone else's and coming up with the wrong conclusion. We cannot deny another's salvation. Just because he or she did not come with the same circumstances to Christ as we did. We do not preach that a soul can only be saved if they are within our church. And believe me, there is something, that is something that is held by various ones throughout this country. Unless they're converted under their ministry, well, the chances are they're not really saved at all. The Lord said, All their sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And men and women, while we are in a denomination that preaches Christ and preaches the gospel, listen, we have no monopoly of the blessing. But I want you, I want you to underline in your heart that it is only Christ that saves, it's not a church. It is the Holy Spirit alone that convicts and convinces men of Christ and their need to be saved. The words of Christ to Philip were the same as he spoke to Matthew, the tax collector. He simply said to him, follow me. And they were to have the same effect. And from that moment, Philip had one concern, and that was that his friend might have a meeting with the Lord. And it's this conversation with Christ that I want us even to look upon, and particularly tonight, in the words of verse 48 and 49. I want you to notice, first of all, the invitation to Christ. Has the church today lost what it is to be a soul winner? We often sing it, He that, he that winneth souls is wise. But how much do we pray over it? How much do we, do we desire that we might have the spirit of Andrew and the spirit of Philip as they sought to bring others to Christ? It was certainly something that Philip possessed, for note that the invitation that he has extended was personal. You look at the words of verse 45. It says, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It simply states that Philip findeth Nathanael. That means there's an effort there. He went out and he sought for him. And having come to a knowledge of Christ himself, he seeks that he might bring others to that same knowledge of who this Nathaniel was. There's various thoughts. What we do know is that he is mentioned by John in the last chapter as one of the disciples who was to have a meeting with the resurrected Lord. And the most plausible opinion is that this is the same disciple who in fact is called Bartholomew in the other Gospels. We state that, we say that, because in three out of the four lists of disciples, the names of Philip and Bartholomew always follow one another. They're always together. We're looking here at a close friend of Philip. And the other point to, to note is that the name of Bartholomew is never mentioned by John in his gospel. It can be strongly suggested, therefore, by these words. This was a close friend of Philip. He's called Bartholomew by the other three gospel narratives. But here he is noted as Nathaniel. 
And men and women, young person, can I say to you, you can have no better friend than one who desires that you have a saving interest and that you would have a knowledge of Christ and that you'd be walking with Christ. That's your best friend. Conversely, it is no friend who will keep you from the Lord. It's no friend who will keep you from the house of God and the things of God. Philip desired that his friend would have a meeting with the Christ. And that is why he gives this personal invitation to him. For he goes to seek him out and to share with him a glorious message. I wonder when was the last time, child of God, that you personally, personally sought to reach someone with the message of Christ. There's no substitute, you know, for that personal invitation. The preacher can do it, and, and it's right that I do, and elders and so forth. But you know, there's no substitute for that personal word. Will you come with me to the house of God? Will you hear just what the Lord has done for me? It's my prayer that we would not wait until a gospel mission comes around at the end of the month, but that every Sunday night will be looked upon as a special effort in the gospel and as an opportunity to reach souls for, for the Savior. But I want you to see in this invitation that it was problematic. Philip had only a limited knowledge of the Savior, and in his zeal, he speaks forth two things that are cause for concern with this man, Nathaniel, is concerned. Verse 45 again, and you'll read this. He says, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The first problem was the place. Philip speaks of him as Jesus of Nazareth. This is the place from where it was commonly accepted he was from. But of course we know that the Old Testament scriptures were to speak of Christ as coming from Bethlehem, Judah. That's where his birth was to be fulfilled. Nazareth was the place where he was brought up in the home of Mary and Joseph. And when Nathanael heard that, it posed to him a problem because here we're looking at a man who knew Moses and the prophets. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew that the promised Messiah was not to come from Nazareth. And that is why he asks, as he does in verse 46, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was considered as a, a backwater town. It was considered as a place where there was not much good come from. In fact, I understand today it is still uh, sort of that place as well. It's not the, the place that you would first go to as a, as a visitor, as a tourist. And Nathaniel asked, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? The other problem was not the place, but the descent that Philip spoke about. He says, that's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. For you see, that was something that was commonly believed. John chapter 6, turn over and read with me the words of verse 42. Verse 41 gives you the context. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? It's commonly accepted and believed that, he, that Joseph was his father. What the unbelieving world didn't understand was that Joseph had no part in the incarnation of Christ. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Ghost. And thereby Christ had no taint of man upon him. The world perceived that Joseph was his father. Christ was to speak of God 
as his father. And he had come to do his father's will and to finish it. The invitation of Christ by, or to Christ by Philip was to throw up some problems in the mind of this man, Nathaniel. And you know it's no different to this very day. For when others are invited to Christ, they're akin to those that we read of in the Scriptures. And they, with all one consent, began to make excuse. And the devil and the flesh and the world will throw up this problem and that problem and that difficulty and this pressing matter. And those problems and those things will come into the minds of the hearers. And the result in many instances is the deferring of the issue. And what Paul was to hear uh, on the Mars Hill, we will hear the again of this matter. It's a procrastinating. Dear believer, just consider that God is able to remove every problem and every obstacle and he can use the imperfect words of our invitation that we might be used to point others to Christ. For the invitation that Nathaniel received, you'll notice, was persuasive. I know that to be the case when I read verse 47 where it says Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him. He saw Nathaniel coming. What brought him to that place? The skeptical mind of Nathaniel was won through the Scriptures. Philip didn't enter into a heated debate about Nazareth, its suitability or not to have the Messiah come from there. He didn't even reprove Nathaniel for his unbelief. You know what he said? He said the same thing as the Lord said to Andrew and to that other disciple whom I believe was John. He simply said, come and see. But what he did speak of was the sum and substance of the Scriptures. For if I bring you back to verse 45, you'll see what he said to him. He says, we have found him of how Moses in the law and the prophets did write. To Christ, every early promise in the days of Adam and Abraham and Noah were to point. To Christ, every Old Testament sacrifice pointed in their ceremonial worship. Of him, every sacrificing high priest was to point. Every part of the tabernacle was but a type. Every judge, every deliverer of Israel was but a figure. He was a prophet like Moses. He was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He was a king in the house of David. It is in the Old Testament scriptures that we are told he was to be virgin born and that he would be born in Bethlehem. He's the lamb that is foretold by Isaiah that was to be slain. He's a true shepherd. He's the branch. He is the messenger of the covenant of whom the prophets spoke about and wrote. The more we read of the Old Testament, then the clearer will be the view of the promised Messiah who was to come. And you know, the rich man in hell was to learn that it's not one been raised from the dead that sinners need. It's not even signs and wonders that sinners need. It's the Word of God that they need. Luke 16, 27, then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that I would send him to my father's house. He had five brothers. 
He wanted Lazarus to go even to warn them of that place in which he was found. Verse 29, Abram said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. That's what they need. It's the word. And you and I are more blessed because we have the complete canon of Scripture. We don't only have the Old Testament, we also have the New Testament. And it reveals to sinners and persuades them of their sinful state and of their need of Christ. I wonder will the invitation of this preacher persuade any in this gathering tonight to come to the Savior? You say, I want to go on because I want you to see the introduction to Christ here. It was to those simple inviting words, come and see, that was to bring Nathaniel to the place of having a conversation with the Lord. When the Savior saw Nathaniel coming, there's a commendation that is worthy of our note. You'll find it in the words of 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Now, we know something. We know, of course, of Jacob, that he was a man of guile and deceit. Jacob was a twister. He lived up to his name. He's always seeking to be calculating to his own ends. That is, of course, until God met with him. Until God broke him at Penuel and his walk was different from that time forth. He was no longer a surplanter. He was a true Israelite. And God gave him a new name of Israel. And I remind you of that because when Christ looked at this man, Nathaniel, he saw a man in whom there was no deceit. He wasn't a twister. He wasn't a surplanter. He was an Israelite. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was one who was circumcised in heart. He was an Old Testament believer. He was a true child of God like Anna and Simeon that we read about in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke. He was one who was already saved. I want you to understand that. Like them, he was living by faith. He was waiting with expectation of that coming Redeemer that his scriptures had spoken about. He was a man who had known the work of grace. For only the work of God's grace can give a son of Adam and one after Jacob in the flesh a heart in which there's no guile. What Nathaniel had seen of Christ in the scriptures he held firm to. Even in view of the heresy of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees and the fashionable religion of that day, he had stood firm, and hence the Lord could utter such a commendation to him. He, what does God see when he looks upon you tonight? What does he see when he looks upon your heart? It's either a heart that is sinful, or else he sees one who's abiding in his son instead of the filthy garments. On you, you have the spotless robe of Christ's righteousness adorning you. Nathaniel didn't object to this commendation. His difficulty was with the Lord's discernment. In verse 48, Nathaniel saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? How do you know me? And what was to follow was a revelation. Nathaniel was surprised that this Jesus of Nazareth was to exhibit any such knowledge of his character. But what was to be revealed to him was that before Philip found him, he knew him. Christ, you see, here reveals himself as God 
as the all-seeing, as the all-knowing, as the all-present one. Look at the words of verse 48. Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. He not only knew what Nathaniel was like, an Israelite in whom there was no guile, a man whose heart had been touched by God, but he knew where he had been that day. And you'll note that as a fig tree, a tree, fig tree were known in those days, especially in its season for the great foliage. And the thought is that the Lord knew him and he found him. He saw him sitting under that fig tree. I believe that he was under that fig tree, not merely as a shade, a shade, a shade I should say, from the sun, but he was under that fig tree in order to pray, in order to ponder the word. He may even have been considering that passage where Jacob had a vision of the ladder reaching from uh, earth to heaven if what follows has anything to go by. And the Lord says to him, Before Philip called thee, I saw thee. But whatever he was doing, and we're not being dogmatic, but I just simply throw out that suggestion, that thought. Christ revealed himself as having saw him, as one who is able to see right into the soul and has the ability to see beyond what any man can look at. And Nathaniel thought himself to be alone. And Nathaniel thought himself to be hidden from sight. The eye of the Lord was upon him. Christ was perfectly acquainted with all that Nathaniel had said, had thought, and had done. And he knows no change. He knows everything about you, dear loved one. He knows where you stand with God tonight. You know, we are all guilty. We can put on a good show, can't we? A smile can cover many a hurt, many a pain. We can put on a good presentation. But the Lord knows the heart. The Lord knows where you are tonight in terms of your relationship with the Lord. The Lord knows whether you're cold of heart tonight. The Lord knows whether you're backsliding tonight. Lord knows whether you're unsaved tonight. Because he can look beyond where the preacher can't look to or anyone else. He can search the deepest recesses of the soul. Have you been brought to that fearful consideration? That in your sin, that in your shame, that in your nakedness, dear unsaved loved one. Thou, God, seest me. Hagar said that in the wilderness. She came to the realization, Thou, God, seest me. Do you realize that tonight? Do you realize it every day of the week? No matter where you are, never beyond the eyes of your loved one at home, God's eyes see you. Knows your thought, knows your deeds, and your words. Nathaniel could offer no other excuse. 
No other response other than the confession that he makes in verse 49. He said, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Gone are the last vestiges of remaining doubt. This was the Messiah. This was a heart now convinced that this was the promised Messiah of whom he read about in his scriptures who should come. He was the Son of God who sat on heaven's throne. He was the King of Israel who would sit on the throne of the universe. He was the Son of God. That's the confession of his deity. He is the King of Israel. That's the confession of his destiny. Tell me, is he your, your Savior? Is he your master? Is he your king? The wise men sought the one who was born king. The title above his head when they crucified him on Golgotha's brow was the king. And tonight, men and women, he sits on the throne of heaven as king. He's not merely coming as king. He already is king. He's already on the right hand of the Father and He's coming one day to set up His earthly kingdom. Will you be part of it? Because I introduce you to Christ. Just as Nathaniel had this introduction of Him at this point. I want you to notice also finally the instruction of Christ because when a soul comes in contact with a Savior, then there's instruction. And the instruction that Nathaniel was to receive was a one of authority of Christ. It's one of those occasions where the Lord was to use a double verily, verily. You look at verse 51. He said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, I want you to understand. I want you to underline it. If you are in the habit of writing little notes in your Bible as I am, the word verily, verily is the same word or is the word in Hebrew as amen. That's the word there. It's amen. The double use of it is used for emphasis to express the assurance that what was stated would happen. Amen gives the literal translation of so be it. That's why we say amen at the end of our praying. So be it, Lord. And in all the Gospels where there's a single amen is used of him, it's only John who records a double usage and that 25 times over. It's always at the start of the sentence and it's always spoken by Christ. For he is the Amen. And he does so to emphasize the authority of the Savior. You consider if you turn over to the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible, it's John who also uses the word there as the name of Christ. Revelation 1 verse 18 says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. That's the title of the Savior. It's the same word as the last word that is found in the complete canon of the Scriptures. You see, the last thing that God has to say to us is to leave us thinking of the name that is given of His beloved Son. It's the Amen. The one in whom grace and truth is found. And to Nathaniel, 
Christ affirms that he is the amen. He's the only mediator between God and man. He's the son of God. He's the king in David's royal line. And in him resides all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. That instruction also conveys something about the angels. Because the Savior is found speaking of them in verse 51. He says, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. They're said to be ascending and descending in the same way it was in Jacob's dream. Not the other way around, you looked. The angels are already here. They are in constant communication with heaven. They are those who watch over God's children in this hostile world. They're sent forth as to minister for them who shall be theirs of salvation. We read out of Hebrews 1 and the words, verse 14. They counter the activity of Satan's principalities and Satan's powers, and they continually serve the one who sits on the throne and who is working out all things for his eternal good for his people. And it was the angels who were present at the birth of Christ. It's the angels who ministered unto him in the wilderness in his temptations. It's the angels who were found in the garden. They're also there present and after his resurrection and they're also there following his ascension and they're coming with him when he returns one day all showing to Nathaniel and the other disciples in a greater measure that truly he was the son of God and the promised Messiah who should come this instruction was furthermore one of anticipation I believe in the words of verse 51, if you take it together, verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Those closing words that the Savior caused Nathaniel to consider was for him to look forward to the time of his second coming to this earth. For then those words will be fulfilled in their widest sense. He will return not in humility as he came the first time. But he's coming back in all power and glory that his people will see the heavens open and that constant communication between the new heavens and the new earth. He's coming back king of kings, lord of lords. You see the word there, hereafter ye shall see the heavens open. That's plural. He's not only speaking to Nathaniel. He's speaking to all of God's people. And God shall tabernacle himself with man. And in Nathaniel, believing Christ to being the Messiah, when he came in all lowliness and humility, how his faith will be rewarded when he will see him as all of God's people will in the splendor and as king of all the earth. Was that not the same truth that the Savior imparted to the Jews? I just take you back. In closing to Matthew chapter 26, the words of verse 64, it says there, this is the time where the accusations were brought against him before Caiaphas, the Jews, 
Verse 63 says, But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered, and saith unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's the same truth. When Christ shall appear, he will appear as the glorified God-man. Nathaniel confessed he was the Son of God. Christ spake of himself as the Son of Man. He's the last Adam. He's the seed of the woman that he might regain for sinful man all that Adam lost in the fall. Tell me, have you the anticipation of meeting the king one day as your savior and as your God and as your redeemer? He's coming back with the angels. He's coming back in all glory and power to set up his kingdom. But if you hope to be with him then one day, then make sure you will be by meeting with the only Savior now, by having that conversation with Christ now, and being born again, being saved from your sin, being made right with God, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no guile. Will you come tonight? I pray that you will. Pray the Lord will bless his word to each of our hearts this evening for his own name's sake.